Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, I talk to Wendell Wallach, scholar at the Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics at Yale University and co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Technology, Values and Policy. With your council, you talk about technology, values, and policy. That's a very interesting connection. How has technology historically uh, challenged our moral values and ethics? Could you give us a couple of examples? Well, it has challenged us in so many ways. There has been this co-evolution between technology and really humanity and its development, really going back to when our first ancestor picked up a stone and decided they could use it as a tool or as a weapon. So already we have both the benefits and the more destructive uses of technology from the get-go. And that has gone all the way through the history of human development. So think of something like the crossbow. It made people who just had bows and arrows really vulnerable, but it was a piece of technology that gave great power to those who had the technology. And I often like people to think back just to a mere 200 years ago to our ancestors in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. By our standards, they were unscientific, superstitious, uncouth, filled with racial, sexual, and class prejudices. And yet here we are 200 years later, and we have become a very different kind of people. Mm-hmm. Now, to be sure, some of us still have those, those prejudices, but it's clear even the most civilized of people would have had those attitudes 200 years ago. They no longer have them. So throughout the history of humanity, we have seen this development of both our culture, our cognitive capabilities, our appreciation for life developing hand-in-hand with our technologies, and that's, that's what makes it so exciting that we have come to this era where there is this dramatic uplift in all kinds of new technologies that, are, that we are, will be availed of, but all of them come with their benefits, and they also come with either risks or societal impacts, which are going to be either unsettling, if not also destructive. So it's largely a challenge to weigh the benefits against the risks and decide whether the benefits are really worth it and whether we can actually mitigate the risks, whether we can minimize the impact, the societal impacts that might be detrimental upon us and truly take advantage of these technologies. So that's a lot about what we think about when we're in this world of technology and values and policy. Mm-hmm. How are we seeing this playing out today with the, with the third industrial revolution, if you want, with the digital technologies? What do you see some of the biggest problems being with that? Well, of course, uh, it's not just the digital technologies. We're seeing it with the nanotechnologies. We're seeing it with the biotechnologies. We're seeing it with the convergence of all these different technologies. We're seeing it, I mean, we're seeing it across the board with so many different emerging technologies. So you look at all the advantages you're getting out of digital technologies, but you've also lost privacy. Mm-hmm. in ways that would have been considered unacceptable in at least many of the democratic countries just 15, 20 years ago. So that's one of the obvious things. Um, our security is threatened in totally new ways. We are in the midst of an ongoing cyber war that most people are not cognizant of, 
But it is actually comparable to what the Cold War was immediately after World War II. So it's all these kinds of things where each one of these new technologies brings us significant benefits, but there's always a price to be paid, there's always trade-offs that are going on, and that's what we need to be more cognizant of. And unfortunately, not enough people are. You know, that's, that's the real downside. Or they understand them in very simplistic or superficial ways, or they're misrepresented by the press. So for example, I'm seen as an, as, as an expert on the ethics and governance of AI and robotics. But if I talk about AI, the first thing people think about is Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. And if I get interviewed by the media, the odds are about one out of two that any quote they use of me will be on a page in which there will be a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. And I may have only talked about self-driving cars, you know, or something else that is really about tomorrow. And it, ha it may have nothing to do with my attitudes about the long-term future, which, by the way, I'm very skeptical of these science fiction scenarios. I call myself the friendly skeptic, friendly to the Kendo engineering spirit, but just totally skeptical that we know enough about intelligence to know what kinds of it are, of it are reproducible in, in machines. But it's, it's that kind of thing where the hype around AI is so far out of line with the reality of the near-term benefits and technologies that are realizable today. Guide us a bit through what are the real moral, ethical, and values challenges that AI will pose to our society, in your opinion, in the next 10 to 15 years? Well, I think for the next, for the next 10 to 15 years, AI is going to be really a value add, largely. It's going, mm -hmm. to, it's going to help us make our processes more efficient. It's going to help bring to light information that will be helpful to us in our decision-making. It will add new tools. So, so you will get features on your phones that might start to even begin to act like personal digital assistants and even do something that you might want it to do when you aren't even present or you aren't, you're caught up in a meeting and you say, oh, I want you to trade this stock on the stock market for me once it hits such and such a point or, you know, or, or just keep an eye on that or let me know this. Or that. that kind of value add, I think, is the main thing we're going to see. But from a business perspective, it's going to be much more refinement of their business processes of ensuring, let's say, they're, if they're developing cars, they're going to develop cars that are going to be safer because they're more exacting in their production specifications and mm -hmm. things like that. But we're also going to see a growth in the digital trading, and, this, and that's going to be speeding, continuing to speed up um, investments, but it's also going to speed up warfare. We're going to see... We're going to see technologies which will probably be have some degree of lethal autonomy and to some degree they will undermine the decision-making processes, the robust command and control in warfare. So all of these are kind of the short-term things that are going to come out of AI. But none of that is fully autonomous systems making mm -hmm. advanced decisions in all the activities they're performing. What other areas do you see as equally powerful in terms of, you mentioned nanotechnology, uh, I know you're also an expert in bioethics. Mm -hmm. uh, how, what are the other technologies that you see in this, what we call the fourth industrial revolution, playing a big role in the next 10 to 15 years again? Well, bioethics is going to be one of the, the more difficult challenges, both because, again, 
we will be able to create all kinds of biological products and we will have all kinds of genomic understandings that, that can, for example, will help us to be more precise in the kinds of health care we provide to individuals. We may know more about your personal genome or the bacteria in your gut. I mean, all these different aspects which may give us information about what kinds of treatments work for people like you versus treating you with other um, other conditions. I mean, think of all the people who are going through chemotherapies for cancers that have nothing to do with their biology are not going to help them particularly. It would be nice to sort that out in advance and say, you don't have to go through the hell of this 10-week ten, chemotherapy treatment because we know that chemotherapy treatment doesn't work for people with your genetic profile, but we have better results for people with your genetic profile with this kind of treatment. So we're having all these kinds of advantages. We may be able to create, it looks like we're going to be able to create versions of mosquitoes that do not carry either the Zika, well, there's the mosquito that carries the Zika virus is different than the mosquito that carries malaria. They're two different species. But the point is, we are moving in the direction of not only being able to create a mosquito that won't carry those viruses, but introduce that mosquito into an environment so it will replace all the mosquitoes that are capable of carrying that virus. So that is an un unimaginable benefit. But once you have that kind of power, it could be used in detrimental ways. So consider the development of a locust that does not swarm. Vast savings in agriculture and in crops, in the destructive the destruction that swarming locusts create. But when you consider that locusts are swarming over 40, over land that includes 47 countries in the world, we have no idea how they are going to alter the ecosystems through which they move through. Perhaps there are detrimental things, there are, there are unintended consequences that occur because they don't swarm. Now, I suspect that locusts that don't swarm, the overall benefits will outweigh the risks, but that doesn't alter the fact that there may be some risks there. And when you begin to think about replacing one species of an animal or plant with another variation that may have some benefits, it's possible that in some of those cases, the prices, the risks will far outweigh the benefits. And then, of course, we have this whole area of editing the human genome and what kind of power that gives to the individuals who create biological products or maybe even help people be slightly selective in who their progeny will be, who their, who their children will be. We're a long way from designer babies. We have no illusion about that. Even though that, that gets hyped, the complexity of the human genome is such that it will be hard, even if we knew what each gene did, to select for more than one or two features at a time because all these genes do so many different things that we don't even know what all they are doing. Plus that they're just ethical issues about whether you should be doing this at all. But obviously people are already engaging in selection for sex, perhaps for one or two other features, usually selection for a child that won't carry a hereditable disease that one of the parents carries. But that's the universe we are entering into, and it, it, it touches upon so many technologies. I would like your opinion on, on all of these big decisions that the humankind might be able to, to take in the future 
into exterminating from exterminating one species like uh, and then replacing it with a, a modified species uh, to selecting the genes of their uh, or some genes of their kids what is your opinion on this and then more in the, in the policy world if you want who decides about that uh, because obviously you're an expert on this I imagine that there are other experts that will have a different opinion to you so it's not a matter of uh, everyone agreeing on this so, so who takes the decision how do we regulate all of this? so there are 10,000 issues here to have an opinion on do you understand and I don't know that my opinion should be taken all that much more seriously than other people's opinions the difference between me and other people is I perhaps have become sensitized or aware of the breadth of different factors that come into play in each of these areas. But ultimately we need multi-stakeholder forums to make decisions for societies, for communities, for nations, and even internationally what kinds of standards we should put in place. And I am more concerned with having that kind of input, even then what the final decision is. Yes, I think that my prejudices are what everybody else should believe. We all are born with that bias. It's one of our genetic predispositions that what's right and good is what my opinion is. <laughs> and my opinion should be turned into law and public policy. But I'm not deluded enough to think that my opinion should be what gets accepted in all cases. I'm more concerned that we don't go into this uncertain future without people having a, engaging in a dialogue about what the ramifications and giving their verdict on where we should go ahead. So we have, for example, with genetically modified organisms, genetically modified foods, we have some countries like the U.S. that have embraced that. We have other regions like Europe and Canada that are rejecting it. I often wonder whether it's informed on either side. But we, we really need our societies to engage in informed conversations and set general guidelines for what is and what isn't appropriate and what kind of future we want to create for our children. So I often use the self-driving car as a metaphor for all of this. What's taking place in history is technology is moving into the driver's seat as a primary determinant of humanity's future. And we shouldn't let this happen as an inevitable factor. We shouldn't let it happen just because it serves an economic good for some parties who want to take a benefit of it. We should understand that we are making decisions about the future of humanity and we need to engage that. And that's what the foundations for public policy should be. But then there's also what kinds of policies and what kinds of mechanisms do you put in place to, to further that. So I'm very, I'm very involved in thinking about more agile governance models, looking at what needs to be regulated on an international level, whether we can get away from heavy regulations and bureaucracies on, on, on national levels, and whether we can come up with more agile, adaptive models of oversight that are less dependent on hard law and governance, but more dependent, but look first at whether we can engineer ways around issues that we perceive or whether we can put in softer standards and industry oversight to, uh, to manage as much of these challenges as we can and leave government largely to, to deal with punishing wrongdoers when that is uh, 
that's what arises. Sounds very interesting. How does the broad public, how do I get a role? How do, how do I get engaged? Uh, I mean, all of these decisions, you mentioned multi-stakeholder forums, uh, multilateral discussions, right. uh, but uh, if, if people need to be engaged, how do they do it? Uh, do they, do they well, vote yeah. with their wallet, or is there another way? Well, I think it starts with education. It starts with submerging your yourself in these issues, trying to understand what those issues are. But I also think it starts with political leaders and responsible media and other parties understanding that the society needs to go through an educational process. It's not just about hype. It's not just about selling newspapers or getting elected. But we really need to make this part of our, you know, part of our very curriculum. So different people are doing what they can in this regard. I mean, I wrote a book called A Dangerous Master, How to Keep Technology from Slipping Beyond Our Control. And it's largely a primer on what are these emerging technologies, a little bit of history, a little bit of science, a little bit about the benefits. But then I underscore what can go wrong and how we can attend to what goes wrong in terms of ethics and engineering and oversight. And the point of my writing this book was that I wanted to see if in 100,000 words or less I could give people enough information that they could feel that they could now begin to engage in the conversation and not allow the experts to say, well, you don't really understand what's going on. But that's only where it starts. It starts in laying that foundation and then you as you read other news stories and others, other things, you begin to add to your basis of understanding. You begin to recognize when the news is false, another big ethical issue that has come up recently. But you begin to engage in this whole process of educating, informing, making yourself a digital citizen who does not have to defer these decisions to the experts or the politicians. That was Wendell Wallach, scholar at the Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics at Yale University. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future.